From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. This week, we speak with Olivia Harrison, Associate Professor of French and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California, about the central role that the history and memory of French Algeria continue to play in France's politics, culture, and society. Stay with us. Sixty years after the independence of Algeria, the lingering perverse effects of Western colonialism are still felt throughout the world. Whether here in the U.S., in France, or in Palestine, the ideology of white supremacy undergirding colonialism is still with us, continuing to wreak havoc not only on formerly colonized peoples and migrants, but on the colonizers themselves, as seen in recent efforts by new fascist authoritarian forces to take over entire nation-states in order to turn back the clock of history. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Olivia Harrison about her recent article titled France, a Settler Post-Colony, which was recently published in Middle East Research and Information Project Journal. Olivia Harrison is an associate professor of French and Italian, comparative literature, Middle East studies and American studies and ethnicity at University of Southern California. Olivia, in a recent article titled France, a Settler Post-Colony? You highlight the many ironies and contradictions in the history of modern France since the independence of its last major colony, Algeria in 1962. As we saw throughout the French presidential campaign, which ended Sunday, 60 years after the end of colonization in Africa and and its unintended consequences, like a familiar ghost, the history of colonization still looms large in France's national consciousness in ways that are often subconscious. Far-right parties, which claim at least one-third of the electorate, have made the question of immigration from France's, uh, from France's former colonies, and especially Muslim-majority colonies, their signature issue. And they have been gaining popularity over the past three decades among the disgruntled electorate, to the point of actually threatening to come to power. Sunday, Marine Le Pen won close to 42% of the vote, a remarkable feat for an openly racist some call it neo-fascist party. You quote a certain French right-wing thinker about, quote, mutual respect and mutual decolonization, a theme echoed by certain politicians in the presidential election that concluded just a few days ago. Can you explain to us what the far right means by decolonizing France? Wasn't it, after all, the other way around? France, which actually colonized Africa, and is still a major player in many of its former colonies. Absolutely, and I would add to that, quite a few people would contend that France is still an imperial power in more explicit and direct fashions because it still has a number of overseas territories that it governs, where there are, in fact, independence movements. So if you've put your finger on it, what I'm interested in is this, you could say, appropriation or identification with the processes of decolonization. 
were at the heart of mid-20th century movements of decolonization. There's a, a really remarkable erasure of that history, which is simply kind of like these terms are sort of plucked. And actually, I've worked on the fact that some of these thinkers are actually reading people like Franz Fanon or Mahatma Gandhi, explicitly using them to theorize the decolonization of France. So someone like Renaud Camus, no relation to Albert Camus, the writer, but Renaud Camus, who popularized this notion of great replacement, that's a term that, as we know, has been used, for example, by Brenton Terence, the uh, Australian mass shooter in New Zealand a few years ago, and others in, you know, in Charlottesville. You will not replace us was one of the mantras of that. The Jews will not replace us. Right, yeah. And the term of uh, Camus' book in English, he has one book in English, and it's called You Will Not Replace Us. So it's become this mantra. He is also notoriously an anti-Semite. But basically, this terminology is recirculating in these really kind of perverse ways, where I think people in France today, a lot of people might simply accept that on these completely ahistorical grounds to think of France as currently being colonized by immigrants. So in your introduction, you were saying, you know, immigrants from France's former colonies. But in fact, I'm arguing that the term immigrant has replaced or has kind of occluded that colonial genealogy. So when we talk about immigrants, when people talk about immigrants in France, and more generally speaking in Europe as well, it's as if these immigrants kind of come from nowhere. Like we have no connection to, no history with the countries from which immigrants come, and therefore they're counter-colonizing France, to use the term. It's like a sort of reverse colonization or counter-colonization. So we, French people, we left Algeria. Now it's your turn to leave France because we also want to be decolonized. And that's where Alain de Benoit, who's one of the major theorists of the new right, that accompanied decolonization. So after Algerian independence, a lot of the parties that were for French continued presence in Algeria theorized what they called a sort of new right movement, a regenerated right-wing movement that started calling for the decolonization of France from immigrants and, of course, completely occluding the history that had brought those migrants to France, some of them before when they were still French subjects before decolonization, when they were in fact French nationals, if not French citizens. So immigrants from Algeria, from Morocco, Tunisia, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from West Africa, who were literally recruited after World War II to reconstruct France. And I mean, that history goes back to World War I, and even before with the, the use of colonial troops in France's wars. So starting with World War I, then World War II, as we know, France made extensive use of colonial troops, in particular for cannon fodder. So that whole history of France's involvement with its colonized subjects and that sort of genealogy of immigration in post-colonial France is completely included in this idea of immigrants as either guests, right, if you're kind of for multiculturalism and immigration, they're guests and we want to welcome them, or, and this is a much more pervasive discourse now in France, as invaders, right, as people who are conquering France that we need to now reconquer, as Eric Zemmour has, has put it in, his, yes. in the title of his new party, Reconquest Conquest. That was my next question. This uh, presidential candidate, the most far-right one this year, Eric Zemmour, officially, as you said, titled his campaign, Reconquête. Mm -hmm. bringing back the specter of Moorish hordes running rampant across southern Europe in the Middle Ages, and Spain's Catholic gradual recapture of Spain from the Muslims from the 12th to the 15th centuries. 
essentially calling for a holy war, reminding us of George W. Bush calling his invasion of Iraq a crusade, but with much more incendiary Islamophobic overtones. Taking a page from Donald Trump's playbook, Mr. Zemmour, although an observant Jew himself, also brought back during his campaign classically anti-Semitic tropes in his quest to appeal to the most extreme far-right neo-fascists of France, even praising Vichy France at one point. How do you explain the appeal this sort of rhetoric has with a large cross-section of French people who, after all, suffered from fascism during World War II? That's a really great question. I think there are a few things that need to be discussed because Eric Zemmour himself is such a paradoxical figure. So he is the children of Jewish Algerian immigrants to France. And that merits a little bit of unpacking because as far as I understand it, his family is quote unquote indigenous Algerian. So well established before the French conquest of 1830. Um, his last name is a Berber name. So yes, that, that so seems Berber to, Jewish family. And, and of course, Berbers. that theory that he's, his roots are there forever. But yes, exactly. So he's a paradoxical figure, but at the same time, in a sense, paradox that he represents is one that, again, has a particular history. So he's maybe an extreme articulation of this. But as I'm sure you know very well from your background and your experience, the history of divide and rule policies, French colonial divide and rule policies in North Africa, goes a long way to explaining this particular contemporary paradoxical articulation because indigenous Algerian Jews were granted citizenship en masse without asking for it in 1870 through the Crémieux decree, a decree that was drafted by uh, Adolphe Crémieux, who was a Jewish-French parliamentarian and leader on Jewish emancipation in France, who was very much part of this uh, kind of civilizing mission of bringing Jews from the southern Mediterranean, from the Ottoman provinces, into benevolent protection of France, right? And so he and others were instrumental in very much against the desires of a, a large portion, I would say, of the settlers who there was a very strong anti-Semitic vein in uh, among settler communities as there was in France. So this was very much against the desires of many European settlers in Algeria. But nonetheless, in 1870, indigenous Algerian Jews were granted French citizenship. And Benjamin Sora and others have written about the kind of process of really accelerated assimilation of Algerian Jews to the point that after, I think it's Benjamin Sora's book, I'm forgetting the exact title of his book, actually, but Les Trois Exiles, I think, The Three Exiles. I don't think it's been translated into English, but he, he says in, basically in three generations, yes. Algerian Jews no longer spoke Arabic or, for that matter, Berber languages. By his account and other Jewish Algerian historians' accounts, they had long resisted this assimilation. They suffered from Ashkenazi racism. Mr. Cremieux didn't have a very high opinion of Algerian Jews. Exactly. So in a way, I think Zemmour, he's a very exceptional figure, right? I certainly don't mean to suggest that he represents in any way <laughs> Algerian Jews more largely. But nonetheless, his parcours, his trajectory is part of that. He's part of that story. And that story, of course, also includes or needs to be extended to include other divide and rule colonial policies in the Levant, for example, in the Middle East, 
and of course France's role in the production of the Palestinian question, France's role in the establishment of the Israeli state, and so on and so forth. So it's a very complicated transcolonial history, if you will, but, but I think it's important to take into account when understanding Zemmour. Of course, it doesn't explain everything, not by any stretch. It doesn't he, explain his uh, vehement, almost fanatical, I would call it fanatical hatred of his fellow native Algerians. I'm glad you unpacked this history of divide and conquer. It was a double history in his case, or in the case of Algeria, not only dividing native Jews from native Muslims, but also trying later to divide Berber speakers from Arab speakers. So finding every possible fault to divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And Mr. Zemmour, in his own peculiar way, reflects that double Mm -hmm. alienation of Jews from Algeria and then Berbers from Algeria. That's a very good point. And um, I know that you know this very well, but for our listeners, French, you could say, anthropological army that accompanied the conquest. So anthropologists, ethnographers, linguists who were budding experts on on Algeria, right? And I'm putting that in quotation marks um, because obviously a lot of the writings and science that they produce has been very much questioned since. But one of the main theories about so-called Berbers, and that term itself is problematic, as you know, so about indigenous Algerians who call themselves Imazirens, as that's a larger, not simply Algerian, but also Moroccan um, and North African phenomenon, that Imaziren, or so-called Berbers, were more European. They were more sedentary than the Arabs, who were more nomadic, they were less, more superficially Islamized, therefore more prone to civilization and more assimilable than Arabs were, than Arab Muslims were, I should say. So even so-called Berber Muslims were considered less Muslim. Even down to the very racialization of Algerians. Exactly. They kind of created evidence that because some of them have blue eyes or you know blonde. red hair or blonde hair, mm-hmm. etc., that they were basically Aryan. And so they had a very explicitly racial understanding of that distinction between Berbers and Arabs. So they created this kind of myth of the European origins of the Berber populations of North Africa, and they invested a lot of efforts in, in setting up that division kind of very starkly and assimilating mm-hmm. Berbers more than the Arabs. Ignoring uh, the fact that some of the other those who call themselves Arabs, the Arab speakers, are just as blonde and just as blue-eyed. <laughs> that didn't matter. Of course. And it's a racial <laughs> fantasy, right, that, that you'd be able to separate out, you exactly. know, after centuries of cohabitation and mixing, that you'd be able to kind of have these discrete racial identities mm-hmm. or even linguistic identities. So that's, I think, part of the background that's necessary to understand Zemmour. But I think what's very fascinating with Zemmour is the way that he in a way, makes very clear the politicization of indigeneity. So we were saying he's, quote-unquote, an indigenous Jew and indigenous Algerian in the sense that he's also Berber, but he's also someone who is absolutely a kind of European nativist, right? And that's something I'm very interested in, is this recuperation or instrumentalization of the idea of indigeneity in France, in Europe. With Zemmour, it's paradoxical because he's obviously the children of immigrants. He doesn't hide that fact whatsoever. And in fact, his trajectory exemplifies the very kind of colonial, post-colonial trajectories of immigration that we were just talking about a moment ago. And somehow, you know, maybe that gives him more legitimacy. He's able to claim indigeneity in France as a white person, even though he's not, in fact, Christian European in heritage. So he's a very fascinating phenomenon that to me really lays bare this post-colonial 
appropriation, transformation, instrumentalization of the idea of indigeneity. And this is a place where we need to maybe talk about this term indigène. So when someone like Renaud Jamie talks about indigène, he means Francais de Souche, he means Franco-French, he means white French people. That's who he calls les indigènes de la France. The term indigène, though, it is analogous, of course, to indigenous, was used in the colonies, the first time it was used, was used in the colonies to talk about indigenous populations. In that sense, it's close to the way the term indigenous peoples is used in English, right? And so, again, to me, this really points to that colonial genealogy of what we call nativism in English. I love the way that parses out in English because nativism is also based on this idea of the native. And we know that term was used pejoratively to speak about, for example, indigenous Americans, right? The natives or even indigenous Africans under British colonial rule. So you have this like very clearly, very obviously colonial sort of nomenclature. It's very clearly colonial taxonomy of terms that's now being used to talk about French nativism, French indigenous identity as white and Christian. Again, with all the paradoxes, as we were just discussing, of, of Zimur's Jewishness and his Berberness. <laughs> but I think somehow those paradoxes actually really point to a history that is normally not occluded in these discourses. So this term of uh, Francais de Souche, or real French, French from time immemorial, how far back do we have to go? Is Marie Curie Française de Souche. She was originally from Poland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are these Ukrainians who are coming today going to become instant Français de Souche? What yeah. are we talking about when we talk about Français de Souche? The term Français de Souche is actually, which, and it was popularized in the 1970s by Jean-Marie Le Pen, who founded the Front National, the National Front, the far-right anti-immigrant party. That term is actually a shortened version of the term Français de Souche européenne, so French of European roots. Souche, in, uh, as you know, of course, a souche is like the trunk of a tree or the, the roots of a tree. Yes. So, Français de souche européenne. And that term was actually first used, to my knowledge, during the Algerian War of Independence in the French colonial army. So, the French army started using this term Français de souche européenne because, as I mentioned before, they also had Muslim troops. So, they wanted to make a distinction because they were all French nationals, supposedly, because Algerians were had French nationality. And when I say Algerians here, I mean Muslim and Jewish Algerians, colonized Algerians, had French nationality, but they the needed to make this distinction on racial terms. And mm-hmm. so they created these terms, Français de souche européenne, French of European roots, and Français de souche nord-africaine, French of North African roots. Again, this is a place where the language itself encodes this colonial genealogy. When Jean-Marie Le Pen started this party in 1972 and popularized the term Français de Souche, to be honest, I don't know when the European part dropped out of the expression, but it was very obvious what it meant. From the beginning, it meant European French people, white French people. He was a veteran of that war, so he himself had basically volunteered. I think he was a paratrooper during the Algerian war and, of course, was implicated in in torture during the war and was a staunch advocate of continued French colonization of Algeria. He supported the Organisation Armée Secrète, the secret armed organization, which was a clandestine militant organization that was blowing up the Casbah and, and basically agitating for continued French presence, even after de Gaulle, the president of France, clearly indicated that he was ready to move towards self-determination. That's the context in which this term 
first becomes used as a way to distinguish between, at this stage, French who are European and French who are basically Muslim, right, or French who are not European in a colony, that term then gets used in the metropole in France after 1962 to make that same distinction between European, which is to say white French people, and basically immigrants. So this idea of French whiteness is essentially a colonial idea. It's a colonial racial matrix that has, at this point, 60-year afterlife in post-colonial France. Of course, again, someone like Renaud Camus, who is the author of this idea of the great replacement of Français de Souche, of European French people by immigrants, he is one of the kind of staunchest, fiercest advocates of the idea of the decolonization of France, right? Like we need to basically guarantee French self-determination. And they are using exactly the terms of anti-colonial discourse and practice. They are using those words for a reason and it is in order to legitimate basically racist and xenophobic nativism and to basically give it a kind of cachet, right? Which is the cachet of anti-colonial struggles. And somehow it works. Somehow that discursive slippage has managed to completely erase all these histories that we've been talking about that have created a France in the image of its colonies, one could say. As you correctly pointed out in your article and just now in your comments, these terms are a straight continuation of the terms of any previous to Algerian independence. When you say the Algerians were citizens, they were third-class citizens. They were called legally Muslim French, which meant exactly what it meant. It meant not really French, as opposed to the settlers and the Algerian native Jews who had been recognized as full-fledged citizens. So after 62, it becomes necessary to find new terms to this new reality to continue the old cleavages. One interesting tidbit about this whole thing is that unlike metropolitan France, where most people were opposed to German occupation and fascism during World War II, that's what I think is the historical fact, the overwhelming majority of French settlers in Algeria strongly sympathized with Vichy France and Germany, which brings the vast question that underlies your entire article, I think, and that is, can there be room under the same tent for both the notion of democracy on the one hand, France being the birthplace of the Enlightenment, and that of colonialism, which is, to those who suffered the brunt of it, a form of fascism, selective fascism, if you want to call it that. Famous Martinican poet and philosopher Aimé Césaire once called fascism simply colonialism come home to roost. Le fascisme, <laughs> le fascisme et le colonialisme qui rentre à la maison. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier. We were talking about Alexis de Tocqueville, who is best known as the author of Democracy in America. And in that text, acknowledges native genocide. He talks about native genocide. And he talks about slavery. What he says about it can be interpreted in a liberal kind of pro-democracy way, but actually when you read it more carefully, the way he talks about native genocide and, and enslavement is very much in accord with, with the racial hierarchies that were prevalent in the mid-19th century when he was writing. He talks about democracy in America, but it's clearly a settler democracy. 
And similarly, when he's writing about Algeria, also to explain to our listeners, Alexis de Tocqueville went to the United States to observe, you know, democracy in action, as it were. And then, you know, on the heels of that trip, became involved in French politics and very involved in the colonization of Algeria in particular, which might explain his, his kind of success, even though he was regarded with skepticism within the kind of revolutionary context of France at the time. But he wrote extensively and traveled to Algeria. In fact, he considered settling in Algeria himself. And so what we might think of as a paradox, which is the thinker of democracy par excellence, who is also advocating for, these are the terms he's using, for forced expropriation, for razias, for you know burning, looting, uh, displacement of populations. These are all terms that he's using and partly taking from the American playbook, actually, clearly in, in reference to what was going on in the United States. I think he's really a thinker of settler democracy, you could say of white democracy, and this becomes very clear when he's talking about the differential regimes that should be put in place, you know, legally, politically, economically, etc., for settlers versus for indigenous Algerians, les indigènes, quote-unquote, natives. So I'm very interested in that paradox, which I don't think it, it truly is. Um, as you know, I'm sure Françoise Vergès and, and others have talked about the idea of la république coloniale, the colonial republic, yeah. and certain racial regimes that have undergirded post-revolutionary democracies from really from the beginning. You can't really extricate it's not even a question of France not upholding its principles, which is what the Haitians were clamoring for during their revolution, when they, they were in fact the ones to initiate the first abolition of slavery by asking the French revolutionaries to uphold the rights of, of men and of citizens that they had enshrined into law for France. You know, They were saying we need to also be free. It's not so much a question of those principles not being uh, adhered to, as it is, in a way, settler democracy resting upon forms of racial exclusion that are inherent to settler democracy itself. So the point about fascism is very well taken. And we were just discussing also Mahmoud Mamdani's recent book, Neither Settler Nor Native, which places fascism within a much longer colonial history. So you could kind of flip the way that we normally think about this. It's not so much that colonization resembles fascism and more that fascism resembles colonization. And that's what I think César is saying as well. It's only when the Nazis put into practice what had been put in practice in the colonies for centuries, since let's say 1492, if we want to put a date on that. It's only when those practices, those forms of terror are leveled and waged against Europeans that becomes an issue. In your article, you make the observation that settler colonialism was always a transcolonial process and that both the French colonial project and the American one have influenced each other throughout the history of the past few centuries. Not only Alexis de Tocqueville, but the great writer and very popular father of the miserable, Victor Hugo himself, the great icon of democracy and humanist, unbeknownst to many of his readers and admirers today, was also among the myriad public intellectuals who publicly incited conquering French generals in Algeria to accelerate the extermination of the Algerian population. Just like in America, a bevy of French politicians and intellectuals advocated for an all-out extermination of the Algerians. But you say in your article that, quote, settler colonial fantasies of replacing the indigenous populations never materialized in Algeria, end of quote. Why do you think this genocidal project didn't go as far as it did here in the United States and only destroyed 
and I put only in quotes, only about a third of the population, according to France's own historians. This is a very interesting question, and I'm not sure that I'm necessarily the best person to address it in terms of sort of numbers and the history of that. But Olivier Lecourt Grandmaison, the French historian of colonialism, has really thoroughly documented the ways in which specifically American, U.S. American practices of settler colonialism were a major influence for the French conquerors of Algeria and also for settlers in Algeria. So both the military establishment, let's say, and the settlers themselves. And not only U.S. American conquest, although that's probably the most iconic example, right, at this time in the, in the mid-19th century, but also the British in New Zealand and Australia. So there was, there was this you could say, kind of planetary, transcolonial drawing board, a playbook, you could say, of, of in particular, of settler colonization and colonial conquest, more generally speaking. And in his book, Colonisé Exterminé, so also not translated, unfortunately, into English, but to colonize, to exterminate, or colonizing, exterminating, he documents this by looking at the French colonial archives, specifically the French Algerian colonial archives, and the and the, the constant reference, as I said, in particular to U.S. settlement and expansion and to native genocide. And he documents the really the extent to which the idea of extermination, and that's the term that appears most frequently in the archive, was advocated, as we know, often put into practice. He argues that it's actually intentional, so that there, he argues that there was actually a policy of extermination. At the same time, there were those who advocated the so-called civilizing mission and who were for a more, let's say, benevolent approach. We know the Saint-Simonian were very involved in kind of like a sort of colonial utopia. Others, even Alexis de Tocqueville sometimes contradicted himself, right? And he would talk about cohabitation, the importance of even intermixing of populations. So I would say that in the French-Algerian context, maybe I would take issue a little bit with Le Cour Grand Maison in that respect. I don't think there was necessarily a kind of coherent policy that was articulated, let's say in parliament, for example. But there's a, a massive evidence that extermination was one of the methods, let's say, of pacification. And then, of course, there was, at the same time, a need for labor. And this is very interesting because some of the early proponents of colonization actually looked to America also in terms of the idea of how to find enough labor, right? So, if we don't have enough indigenous labor, and in this, in a way, this sort of replicates what happened after 1492, if there isn't enough indigenous labor, if the indigenous labor isn't quote-unquote strong enough for our needs, we may need to import, and they would literally say, we need to import people from China. So they were looking at what was happening in the United States or from Africa. And I don't know that the idea of actually importing African slaves was considered, but in any case, it's, it's certainly suggested, right, by that phrase. So here again, there's a very kind of trans transcolonial emulation going on. In fact, that's not what happened. As you know, the settlement of Algeria was initially French and then other Europeans, and then the labor was indigenous, right? So the, the cheap labor was a combination of indigenous Algerians and and some workers from, you know, Spain, Italy, Malta as well. And you have some of that in your article, that the question of labor was central to whether we destroy everybody or keep a few of them or a lot of them. Well, the great Israeli historian Ilan Pape mm -hmm. has written about the fact that Israel, looking at this history, the failed colonization of, of France and trying to outwit the French and their own experiment in Palestine, 
are very much aware of this contradiction of, on the one hand, trying to at least displace, if not destroy, all of Palestinians, at the same time needing labor, cheap labor, and they have consciously tried to lessen their dependency on Palestinians and their importing people from as far afield from as, as Thailand and other places to not be dependent on the Palestinians and therefore be more able to completely get rid of them when we're there. Yes, absolutely. Actually, the, so the special issue in which my article appears, um, it's not out yet, but the next installment is just out by Miriam Halle Davis, and she talks about that, that comparison as well, this kind of paradoxical need to replace the indigenous population, but also exploit it for labor, so colonialism in general. And of course, in the United States, that paradox was solved, quote-unquote, by chattel slavery. So it's, it sort of bifurcates in that sense. And, and Tugjil, again, is very lucid about that, about the way that particular, let's say, problem is addressed in the United States. And I think he also self-consciously says, you know, we need to not do the same thing in Algeria. Before Mr. Camus, who you mentioned before, and has no relation to the more famous Albert Camus, gave this profound xenophobia where speaking about a name, and that is the, the great replacement, quote-unquote. Before World War II, French quotas for Jewish doctors appeared. They were worried that too many brilliant minds coming from Eastern Europe, Romania in particular, where people were suffering from anti-Semitism coming to France for relief before World War II happened. There was this fear already of invasion, even though these were Europeans of too many smart doctors, and let's leave a few, <laughs> a few slots for ourselves, quote-unquote. This now is popping back up into the open with this great replacement talk, both in Europe and in the United States. In your article, you point out the irony of European settlers who literally engaged in the project of ethnic cleansing and replacement replacing themselves, trying to themselves in different places, different degrees, replace the, the natives. Now there's this fear, which is a continuation of, of that memory, of so-called white people being replaced by non-whites, by non-European ethnic groups, just like the white cop here in America always claiming that he was fearful for his life when he shot some unarmed black person running away and turning his back on him. This interesting, what Sigmund Freud no doubt would call a projection in the mental process by which people attribute to others what is in their own minds. I think it goes right along with what you were saying about the so-called decolonization of France, doesn't it? Absolutely. And just a few notes, since you were talking about earlier forms of xenophobia and specifically of anti-Semitism, of course, that's also during the, at the height of, of French colonialism. One thing I want to just maybe insist on is there have been really important studies of racism, of xenophobia, of anti-Semitism, and even also of anti-immigrant discourse in France for, for a long time. I would say that Gérard Mariel's book, The French Melting Pot is Foundational in this respect, published in the 1980s, one of the first scholarly works in France to really address from an historical, thorough, rigorous historical, and also legal perspective, the question of racism in French culture and society. My interest is, as we've been discussing, is in the colonial genealogies of specifically anti-immigrant 
racism. And it's often a racism that does not seek its name in the sense that it is culturalist. It places the emphasis on cultural difference and religious difference as part of cultural difference, because one can no longer talk about race. But I just wanted to quickly read um, something from Tukji's 1841 essay on Algeria, where he says very explicitly that what he advocates is quote, to replace the former inhabitants with the conquering race, unquote. So this idea of population transfer, basically, of replacing one population with another, which is, of course, as you, as you say, this is what we now call ethnic cleansing, if not genocide, that is fundamental to the colonial project, and specifically, especially to the settler colonial project, again, with all those paradoxes we were just discussing about the need for labor, for native labor. Again, what fascinates me is the endurance of these terms today. So there's, at the, on the one hand, there's an erasure of this history, so that when people talk about France being colonized, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, we're being invaded by foreigners, etc. We're being colonized, too. So there's a complete denial or disavowal of that history of French conquest and colonization. But the terms themselves carry are the vehicle for that history. And so I'm fascinated by the transformation and the use of the same exact term, but used in this in this flipped way to refer to something that's different, but that's still related to that history, right? So if we, again, if we think of, of immigration in the French context, at least, as post-colonial, colonial and post-colonial immigration, and not to say that all immigrants in France, of course, are from France's former colonies, that's not absolutely not true, but the structure of, of immigration, shall we say, is deeply colonial, that genealogy, that link is is kind of almost against the volition of the people who are doing this is visible as evidence. And again, I want to insist on this. Renaud Camus is actually citing Franz Fanon. Alain de Benoit, you know, one of the main founders of the New Right in the post-colonial period, he's explicitly citing Franz Fanon. And, you know, there's, on the one hand, there's a kind of possibly ingenuity or naivete to this operation because they're obviously misreading Fanon, profoundly misreading Fanon. But at the same time, I think it's very intentional. And so it's interesting that you're you're pointing to maybe a psychoanalytic framework to think about this. I completely understand that interpretation and I'm I'm seduced by it as well to an extent because it's hard not to go there. It's hard not to think there isn't some kind of, as you were saying earlier, subconscious or some you know, something going on of the of the order of maybe also envy, I don't know, envy for the status of the of the victim. But at the same time, I'm also interested in this in these larger discursive and really political phenomena that are happening through these particular writers who are reading Fanon, using Fanon to talk about the decolonization of France in the, in the sense of advocating for remigration, as that term meaning basically deportation of immigrants. Yeah, I think that the transformation of these terms is, is really what set me onto this quest to try to understand how they're being transformed and and in a way perverted, uh, taken away from their their original use, which of course is not it's not singular. You know, even the term decolonization has been used in so many different ways, but profoundly deported from their original meaning. Right, completely taken to basically be part of a racist, not even openly like a, a camouflage racist, nativist, xenophobic, and possibly genocidal agenda. I find that really remarkable. And this perversion of the language, of this recuperation of these terms that were first used to describe injustice is not unfamiliar in this country, sort of underscoring your point that it's a trans 
colonial project, that these are inspiring those and vice versa. Uh, in this country, we're very familiar with anti-affirmative action people using Martin Luther King and sometimes Malcolm X to justify mm -hmm. somehow their racist agenda. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that just the French, Mr. Camus, invented. It's sort of a, this beautiful, I'm being ironic, beautiful French <laughs> cross-pollination. They read one another and they come up with similar ideas. Yeah, and it, it's in a way, it's part of the colonial dialectic itself in the sense that, in this sense, the the former colonizers or the colonizers are using the weapons of the colonized, right? Anti-colonial discourse itself, anti-racist discourse itself is, of course, responding to colonial discourse, racial scientific discourse. If you think of Fanon, Franz Fanon, the Martinican theorist of decolonization, who was heavily involved in the Algerian War of Independence, who talked about the colonial world being divided in two talked about two species of man, so the colonizer and the colonized, and he's also ventriloquizing and parroting racist discourse, racial scientific discourse, this idea of there being two kind of biological species of man, but he's using it in a completely different way and subverting racial fantasies to basically talk about the creation of a new man that would no longer be, you know, racially determined. But the thing is that Fennel does it in a really smart way. <laughs> and the people we're talking about, I think, don't fully understand Fennel. So the way that they use Fennel is incredibly reductive and fundamentally not interesting. But I definitely don't want to put Fennel and Camus on the same plane in this respect. Yes, well, of course. <laughs> to quote your article one more time, it's such a nice article, Quote, to think of France as a settler post-colony is to acknowledge the messy history of decolonization as an unfinished project. It also places France on the map of the settler colonial project that continue to structure our purportedly post-colonial present. The figure, as you were saying earlier, the figure of the migrant as guest as a legacy of decolonization, then as now, if migrants continue to wash up on the shores of Euro-colonial nations, it is because they constitute detritus, quote-unquote, of settled, quote, nations. Lots of quotations because you put a distance between you and what these people are saying. And in a way, the irony continues today as we speak, looking at those poor souls who are forced to leave their country as we speak, the Ukrainians, and are being embraced, I think, rightfully by other nations. But we wish we could see some more of that when it comes to, to non-Europeans, to these people who have been disrupted in their own countries, pauperized, destroyed, and despised. You point out briefly one intrinsic, perhaps intrinsic, perhaps not, maybe tell us more, difference between France and the USA in their colonial projects, and that is that France was also the nation of native Europeans rooted there for centuries, if not millennia. This, whereas here in the States, it's quote-unquote relatively new. It's only 500 years or, or less. Is that a fundamental difference between the two colonial empires, or do you see that more of a distinction without a major difference? Yeah, well, my title is a provocation because, of course, we don't think of France as a settler colony. It's, of course, France itself has never been a settler colony the way the United States is founded as a settler colony. So it's a provocation, but I, I want to kind of answer your question by flipping it a little bit. It's a provocation, but I think that 
to quote an article by Etienne Balibar, France, Algeria, one nation or two, I think that we can't think of France today without, in fact, thinking of its former colonies and perhaps in particular its former settler colony of Algeria. And I think you would agree that France's long history, its 132-year-old history in Algeria, is really foundational to modern France itself, to the idea of modern France itself. The, the constitution that we have today was drafted in 1958 in the middle of the Algerian War of Independence. So Algeria is literally constitutive of our current French Republic. So the provocation of the title, in a way, is perhaps also to push settler colonial studies to focus not simply on the settler colonies that became, quote-unquote, independence from the metropole, where settlers basically declared their independence from the metropole, from whence they came, but to think also of those metropoles as fashioned by those settler colonial histories. So if we wanted to make a parallel, it would be to think of maybe of Great Britain as a post-settler colony in that sense. However, I do think, and this is coming back to the transcolonial imaginaries we were talking about earlier, it's not quite so neat because the difference between, for example, Algeria and the United States is that Algeria became a sovereign nation state. It had a process of decolonization. And that was much messier than we're given to understand in the sense that some French people of European roots remained in Algeria after 1962. I think about 200,000 actually initially, and then there were other migrations afterwards. Nonetheless, Algeria became a sovereign nation state ruled by basically a sovereign nation state of its indigenous population, whereas the United States to this day is not. So that's a major distinction. So to think of France as a post-settler colony is, of course, to attend to a completely different history than either the United States or Great Britain. But I think that there is something very important in trying to understand contemporary France in light of that settler colonial history in ways that, for example, we have to, when we think about the United States, we have to think of the United States as not a post, but as a settler colony, even though, of course, that term is extremely controversial. But for all intents and purposes, the U.S. remains a settler colony, whereas France lost its settler colony. That's perhaps the distinction I would insist on. Olivia Harrison is an associate professor of French and Italian, comparative literature, Middle East studies, and American studies and ethnicity at University of Southern California. She spoke with Khalil Bendit. You can read Professor Harrison's recent article titled France, a Settler Post-Colony at Merip.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Yes, we're here. 